I've never told this story to anyone. It took me a moment or two to realise what I'd just agreed to. The first mistake that I ever made in my life. She said, I'm leaving Broome now, I'm coming to meet you. The memory lasted forever. Wanted young dynamic people to join our dog sledding family. All I know is that. It was like a shockwave going through my body. Welcome to another podcast episode from Spun, a live storytelling night in Darwin which is in the Northern Territory of Australia. My name's Jess Ong, and as a dog lover, I'm pretty intrigued about our relationship to these animals. The reassurance, companionship and forgiveness is so immediate and intimate. And you're actually about to hear our first animal story for our podcast series, and it's one that explores this connection. So in the depths of a Canadian winter, surrounded by 170 sled dogs, Rhys Higgins becomes truly wild. It was 2007. I was living on Vancouver Island. I've been travelling there for the last year and a half with my my mate Chris O. And uh, we decided we were going to head east. So we lashed out and bought a car. We spent $100 on this car. We named her Soda. But we needed to invest some time and money into Soda to get her roadworthy, so we did that. And uh, we, we headed east through the Rocky Mountains. And we, we pulled in at Banff and stopped in there. And one morning I was having breakfast and, and Chris O slapped a newspaper down in front of me and said, check that out. And he'd circled an advertisement that read, wanted young dynamic people to join our dog sledding family. <laughs> so he was, he was pretty keen uh, on that. And long story short, we got the jobs. These two 25-year-old Australian guys who have no idea about dog sledding got the jobs. Our first task was to go and meet the dogs. So we went down to the kennel and I remember standing on the outside of the fence and hearing this noise on the other side that was just incredible. Dogs barking, scratching, sniffing, shovels clanging, chains rattling, people talking and laughing. I was just a bit overwhelmed by it all. And the gate swung open and inside there were 170 huskies and other types of dogs just all there. And the the dogs didn't have free reign, they weren't just running around, they each had a kennel which was like a green wooden box with a a flat lid and a length of chain about two metres long. And it formed this really amazing geometric pattern where the kennels are in this grid formation and there was this circle where each dog could reach and these little sort of diamond shapes that were no dog's land. So we spent the day uh, getting to know these dogs, giving them a bit of love, having a pat. And uh, the owners, Jeremy and Carlin, 25-year-old brother and sister duo, said that they were going to give us a month of training. And by the end of that month, we're expected to know everything about these dogs which was uh, we had to be able to recognise them by face, know their name, which kennel was there, how old they were, who they were related to, what breed they were, who they could run with in the team, what position they ran in the team, all of this stuff. They said if we didn't know it within that month, we probably weren't going to know it and they'd let us go. So Chris and I would quiz each other throughout that month of training and, and try and get ourselves up to speed. And we'd ask questions like, who is Avalanche related to and what position does she run? And, of course, the answer to that is avalanche is related to lightning, hurricane, cyclone and volcano. (laughs) And she runs in swing. 
That was one of the ways that they made remembering the, the names and who was related to who much easier, by naming the litters uh, in a theme. So there were the incredible brothers, Megatron and Optimus Prime. <laughs> who, they were great sled dogs. Uh, and then there was the Shakespearean litter, uh, Juliet, Romeo and King Lear. And King Lear thought he was the boss. You, you couldn't put any other male dog near him because he would just attack them. Except for Romeo. He loved his brother. I also met a dog named Chinook, and Chinook was beautiful. He was huge, this big, white, fluffy dog with a huge head, beautiful eyes and a corkscrew tail that sat up on top of his bum. He was really, really beautiful, but he was horrible. He was a, he was a horrible dog. And so the training that we were doing was about getting the dogs fit, as well as trying to upskill us, was getting them fit for the season. So we'd, we'd do these dry runs where we essentially were sledding on a little sled with wheels. And so we'd have to bring the dog team down to a drop line, which was a length of cable with little snaps, and we'd put the dogs on there. And Chinook was a bit of an escape artist. He didn't have a, a chain. He had a pen so that he, we could really keep track of him. And he was very happy to allow me to let him out of that pen. So when I'd go to get him, I'd get his collar, and he's still very friendly to me at this stage. But the second we got out that door, he'd start snarling and snapping at me and uh, just giving me a hard time, you know? And this was one of my first days working this job. And I sort of took him down to the drop line, just trying to hurry him down there. But before I got there, he twisted out of my grasp and turned on me. With his teeth bared, he had his hackles up and he was uh, advancing towards me, growling. And, and I just did what I thought was the natural response, which is back out of there fast. Fortunately, Jeremy was nearby and he swooped in and grabbed Chinook and just put him on the drop line. I was a bit shaken up. Jeremy came over to me and said, See what just happened there? He now owns you. <laughs> if you want to get anywhere at this place, there's a hierarchy and you're going to have to defend yourself. And I thought, really? Is that what this is going to be about? And so the very next day, we were out doing the dry run again, sled on wheels. And there's something happened up the front of the team and Jeremy had to go and sort that out. And on the way back, he was just giving each dog a little pat as he came through. It's important to give the dogs a lot of love. And as he passed Chinook, Chinook did the same thing to Jeremy, snapped at him and, and sort of went him. And in an instant, Jeremy had Chinook on the ground with his forearm across his shoulder, one hand full of head. And he was making eye contact with Chinook and just growling at him like an alpha would, like... <laughs> but Chinook wouldn't submit. And so they rolled around in the dust for what seemed like an eternity to me, sitting in, in this sled just watching on in horror, until finally Chinook did submit. And Jeremy got up cursing and swearing away and dusting white fur off his overalls. And as he approached the sled, I saw he had blood on his face. I said, Jeremy, are you okay, man? You're bleeding. And he sort of, oh, yeah, Chinook wouldn't submit, so I had to bite his ear. <laughs> it was at that point that I thought, what have I got myself into here? If that's what defending yourself means, I'm not sure if I'm going to be cut out for this. And so the month of training came and went, and Chris O and I passed. And we finally got some snow, and the season began in earnest. So a typical day for us meant waking up at 4.30am, picked up at quarter past five, at the kennel by quarter to six, and ready to work at 6am sharp with a head torch on, still dark, big thick padded overalls, ready to go. When we'd come in, often when we'd had snowfall overnight, 
For some reason, the dogs would sleep on top of their kennels. A lot of them would. I'm not sure why, but they didn't want the warm straw inside. they just curl up on top. And when there was snowfall, there'd just be this huge pile of snow with a little nose poking out. <laughs> and we'd go up to them and wake them up and they'd shake the snow off and, and stretch out and get ready for the day. First job was a poop clean. 170 dogs. There's <laughs> a lot of poop. But it's not as bad as you might think because it was so cold there, the poops would freeze. And so it was just a matter of hitting it with your shovel and tang, it would jump out of the snow and into your, little, into your little shovel. So that was okay. So we'd feed the dogs um, and then we'd get the teams together. We'd put them in little individual boxes, put them into the trucks and drive up into the Canadian Rockies. And we'd run tours. We'd run four two-hour tours a day. And each tour was 10 kilometres. So the dogs had run 40 kilometres each day. They were just absolute machines. They, but they loved it. They really loved it. They were made for it. And they were also made for the cold. And it really did get cold. The coldest that I have experienced was minus 38 degrees Celsius. Um, but we cancelled tours that day because it was just dangerous. I used to have a much bigger beard and I'd get icicles around my mouth that would hang down like stalactites that would make any cave jealous. <laughs> Often it would get so cold that I'd have two thick pairs of gloves on and I'd have to lift the lid of the snowmobile up to warm my hands on the warmth from the, the engine. So it was really cold, but it was also incredibly beautiful. I don't know if anyone's ever been to the Rockies, but it's just pretty amazing. Blue sky, white blanket of snow, pine forest. We'd hear woodpeckers in the distance. We'd often see moose and we'd see the fresh prints in the morning, which were usually snow hair and occasionally wolves. So we'd run these tours and at the end of each two-hour tour, the guests would warm up beside the fire with hot apple cider. But we didn't get that luxury because there was still work to do for us. In between each tour, we'd give the dogs some water and we had to give them a whole lot of love. That was, we had to let them know that we really appreciated what they were doing. And we developed this really nice sense of collegiality. We, they became more than just dogs. They were more than pets, you know, they became our colleagues and workmates. So much so that the dogs expected us to get off and help when we were going uphill, when we were sledding. So we had to run alongside going uphill and if you didn't, they'd start looking back and, and give you a dirty look. And if you still didn't help, sometimes they'd just stop and say, no, nah, I'm not doing it. But if the dogs are running 40Ks every day and I'm running maybe seven or eight uphill every day, at the end of the days, we were utterly exhausted. And we'd get back to the kennel and we'd sort of trudge around taking the dogs back to the, each one's kennel, which we knew exactly where it was. We'd pass the training. We'd, we'd feed the dogs. And then, of course, the final job was the final poop clean. And it was usually during this time that one of the dogs would start howling. And one would start, it was often King Lear. And then another would join, and another would join, and another. And it was like this a trickle turning into a river. It was just this really powerful thing. All these dogs howling at the moon together each night after dinner. And uh, one night, about halfway through the season, I was shuffling around, taking, uh, doing my final poop clean, struggling to keep my eyes open. I was so exhausted. And the dogs started howling. And something came over me, and I just stopped. I had goosebumps running all down my body and I threw my head back and no! And, and that was the time that I felt the most wild. 
but still a really, really strong sense of connection to community. And there's, there's nothing that brings people together more than a communal how. Thank you. Reese is now a high school teacher and he shared his story at our event in 2016 where the theme was wild. Now, in case you're just joining us, a bit of background about Spun. We're a live storytelling night in Darwin, a city that's actually closer to Dili in East Timor than it is to any other city in Australia. Darwin and the Northern Territory have a few stereotypes. Some of them including crocodiles, a laid-back attitude and piercing electrical storms are what people associate with this place. But if you dig a bit beneath the surface, there's a real tantalising hum of some pretty incredible people carrying surprising stories. The Spun team work really hard to find these everyday Territorians and help to bring their stories to life. We provide a platform to connect communities and trigger conversation And it's a real privilege to peer into the lives of others, so I hope that wherever you're listening, this provokes an interest in those who are around you. This podcast episode featured sound editing by Rosa Ellen, music by Lajlo Hassani, story production by Patrick Horton, with funding support from Darwin International Airport. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening. No!